I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking with Brian Chesky, co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. YC funded Airbnb in 2009, when the company was at death's door. During YC, we watched the founders work frantically to get growth started and turn Airbnb into the rocket ship that it is today. Learn what it takes to come up with an idea so weird that it seems like it will never work, and then make it work. Hey, all. How you doing? Hey, Brian. We are so excited to have you, Brian, on the show today. Thank you for coming. What I really have been thinking about as we led up to this is that I really would love to do a bit of a wander down memory lane with you about how Airbnb got started and its early days participating in Y Combinator. But I'm curious to ask you because I've read about how or heard about how you've been renting your house out. Are you in your house right now? Yes, I'm in my house in San Francisco. I live near Dolores Park. And I had a guest, actually two guests, who stayed with me this past weekend. And actually, funny enough, the guy was a YC founder. Oh, no way. Can I ask who? Are you allowed to say who? Yeah, yeah. uh, Joseph Nelson. By the time this is out, there'll probably be a blog post that he um, has posted. And he's an alum or he's in the current batch? Oh, sorry. He's an alum. He's an alum. I think he was in YC 2020, that that kind of crazy year during YC. Yeah, and he has like 30 employees. Uh, It's a computer visioning tools for developers. And it was really awesome. I I think like a quick, I mean, obviously we'll tell the story of the company, but one of the things that makes Airbnb different is like, I didn't start Airbnb because I like love traveling and I wanted a better way to travel. You know, like like we started it because we loved hosting actually. And we love people in our world. I don't even really think of us as a travel company, you know, like I, I think we're in some, in some ways we're in the travel sector, but we're really different than most of our travel companies. We're really more about hosting and community. And, and, and so I wanted to do it again. And I had this crazy idea that I do what I used to do, which is have somebody in my house with me um, in another bedroom. I have a guest room when you right when you walk in the house. And so I was trying to think like, what's a good theme for the guest room. And I figured, you know, if somebody wants to stay with me, they're probably really interested in the history of Airbnb. So I created a little like Airbnb memorabilia room and I have, I have like literally the original receipt from the first airbed that we inflated in October of 2007. You know, I have old photos, even pre Y Combinator where we're working out of our three bedroom apartment, the old cereal boxes that were gluing together. And so I get to like kind of show him around. Then we had dinner. It was, it turned out to be like a really late night um, where he, me and his girlfriend just talked and I was you know, giving him my two cents on how to go from 30 employees and beyond. I think there were some insights that I was able to share with him. For example, I think there's a there's a sense when founders start growing to like let go of a lot of details. And I just said like you should like stay in the details. I, I think a lot of what people tell you about running a company is actually incorrect. That's not the way a founder should run a company. So we did that. I took him on a tour of the office. I made him my famous Chesky's chips, a family recipe that I got off Google. Wait a second. When you are renting out some having a you're hosting someone in your house, are you agreeing to cook them dinner and give them tours and 
Like give them all of your time. Yes. And secret family recipes. I'm not a very good cook. I can like cook an egg, but um, I'm more of a baker. Also, I should say a baker. I bake one thing and it's a pretty, like it's the simplest thing anyone in the world can bake. It's a chocolate cookie. But I do that and I got them groceries and we made food together. And then, yeah, I I took them on a tour of the office. It was like maybe like a two hour tour. And I kind of basically did some version of like the Y Combinator talk I do, but in the office. So it's like a living experience, kind of like a tour guide, but you're walking through, but you're the person who experienced it, telling it firsthand. And it's, it definitely gets your heart rate up. You know, you're like, cause you can, you can feel the like sense of like all the craziness that we went through over the last 15 years. I think you need to serve a bag of Cap'n Crunch and rip it open for them yes, exactly, and have them exactly. eat with their hands. Um, exactly. <laughs> I'll exactly. make you tell that story. But oh can Paul God. and I, can Paul and I come stay with you? I would Do love you? to have Paul and you uh, come stay with me. I'd love to. I and, love um, this. But we get, well, then it'll be a reverse office hours where uh, you and PG can like give me feedback again, just like the early days. <laughs> All right. This is a good segue then. This is a good segue. Yeah, let's do it. I, like I said, I'm, I, I want to go deep dive back into when you got started, because I need to say you didn't start when you applied to YC. You had already no. been around for a year. So I want yeah. to go back to how you love being a host and how that's sort of in your marrow, you know, kind of thing, being a host. That is how Airbnb got started, because there, tell the story how there was the conference and you needed to make the money and it was all the hotels were sold out in the Bay Area. Yeah, the story actually starts even before we started a company, I would say the story starts a couple decades ago because I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, which is not t- a typical path to uh, somebody starting a tech company. Although PG, I think, went to RISD for a short period of time, obviously. Yeah, he did. And I, I went with my co-founder, my now co-founder, Joe Gebbia. And I remember on the day of graduation, Joe says to me, he says, Brian, I think one day we're going to start a company together. Now, the thing to know about Joe and I was that we were very entrepreneurial on campus at an art school. And I ran the hockey team and Joe ran the basketball team. We had the hardest marketing challenge in the world. How do you get art students to come to a sports game? And we, (laughs) and and so we were kind of like friendly rivals that at the end of graduation decided to kind of team up, but we didn't know what we were going to do, but he had the premonition and I said, okay, but I, I was a major in industrial design. So I moved to Los Angeles and I'm working, I think my starting salary was like 40-something thousand dollars, 40-45,000 a year, working for a very small company and as an industrial designer. And, you know, basically like we worked with like small clients that didn't have the budget to go with like a really large design firm, like an IDEO at the time, which turned out to be a blessing because I got to basically work with startups and I was able to develop like startup instincts of like, how do you design and bring something to market? And just as a fun fact, before I tell this funding the story, I actually like ended up on a reality TV show kind of against my will. <laughs> what? Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. During like, 2006. Basically, you remember in the mid 2000s, probably the biggest TV show in the mid 2000s was American Idol and Simon Cowell mm-hmm. created it. And it was this huge. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And so Simon Cowell had this idea, which really became the precursor to Shark Tank mm-hmm. called American Inventor, where any person with an idea for an invention could come and you'd win $50,000. The $50,000 you'd use to hire a design firm to like build a prototype. 
And then if you won, I think you, I, I think then they would produce your product. And I ended up getting matched with a guy named Joseph Cifuto who had an idea for a better toilet seat. And so I ended up, and, and my boss is like, you're going to do this, which was kind of interesting. And so I'm like, all right, because I mean, I had to do it because if I didn't do it, they, the firm wouldn't get the business because we were so small. There was really no one else to give the job to. So before I knew it, I was designing a toilet seat on national television for a magician. A magician. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Yeah. What happened to it? Yeah. Believe it or not, it was not as successful as the iPod or the iPhone. Um, what? It, it, yeah, believe it or not, it was just a toilet seat that didn't. It, I don't think it ever got manufactured, but I, you know, I got a little TV exposure. It was it was kind of <laughs> it was it was kind of funny. You know, they 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 tend to pick really colorful personalities for reality TV. So as you can imagine, this person was quite colorful, uh, to say the least. Uh, the magician. And, um, yes, the magician. Was the toilet seat magical? Like, what was the what was the gist of this toilet seat the gist of the toilet seat um well i mean you know there's hard to talk about toilet seats without like people like saying okay move on but um it was basically like his mother had like like a compromised immune system and you know toilet seats there's a lot of bacteria that can spread and so he wanted to make a more hygienic toilet seat and the, the issue was it became kind of like a gizmo like no one really wants to like take a crap in the ipod you know you want to like yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like really having a real sensibility for like appropriate use of technology and when like a latch just works or like something physical works is probably a good lesson. But yeah. anyway, so I'm I'm designing this product and designing all these different products and I'm I'm just like it's interesting, but I remember one day, this is like 2007 now, I look like it, my life is like a metaphor, like I'm in a road in in a car and the road in front of me looks exactly like the road behind me. And I'm like, well, if I just keep doing this, this will be the rest of my life. And it's a good life for someone, but not for me. This is not my life. And at that time, I also, I was like really getting into Silicon Valley. I remember I read the biography of Walt Disney and I got really inspired by that. And I like Steve Jobs was, you know, the iPhone had just come out. It was announced and it felt like the gears of the world that were turning were in San Francisco. And one day I get a package in the mail at my office and it's a, it's a seat cushion and the shape of a human buttocks with a handle on it. And the product is called Crip Buns. It actually is a really well-designed product that my co-founder Joe created that ended up in the Museum of Modern Art gift shop. So it was a very well-designed product, but wow. he basically said a note that said like, I started this company and at the end of the note, it basically said, come to San Francisco. That was like, you know, if the and here's journey, the cushion like, for you in the shape of buns yes. for, you to, for your road trip. Well, uh, perhaps, but it was just, I, the thing that was astounding was he made a product. When you go to design school, you're, you're like making basically products that aren't real forever, right? Like they're all, they're all exercises. Nothing is real. Nothing's getting in production. So to make something real that's in a store that people sell is kind of like astounding. It's like breaking down a wall between like you and the world. It's like amazing. And it's the ultimate thing that any creator wants to do is they want to create something for somebody else to be able to use. And so I thought this is like amazing. This is the time I have to go. I go to work one day, I quit my job. And my boss is like, just kind of surprised my coworkers surprised. I'm living in a house with three friends that I actually convinced to move across the country. So you can imagine like this seemed like a kind of crazy and impulsive move. 
But I've been thinking about starting a company and doing something for a long time. And I had the sense that what was important in the world was happening in San Francisco at that time. And so one day I go in, quit my job. I pack everything in the back of old Honda Civic and I drive up. This is October. I'm going to guess first week of October, 2007. Mm-hmm. I get to San Francisco and I'm told the rent is $1,150 and I don't have enough money to pay rent. And so Joe and I had this problem, like San Francisco was expensive even back then. Yeah. I had like hardly any savings, but it turns out that something was going on that weekend. And what was going on that weekend was that there was this design conference that we were going to go to, an industrial design conference. And it was in San Francisco, like every whatever, few decades. So it was completely crazy that that weekend there was a design conference and all the hotels on the conference website that they were recommending were sold out. And so that's when we had an idea. Uh, Joe actually said, what if we just turned our house into a bed and breakfast for the design conference? But unfortunately, we didn't have any beds, but Joe had three air beds. And so we inflated. Well, you had an extra room, right? You had an extra room. We had an extra room. Yes, we had an extra room. And so we basically got these three air beds. We inflated them and realized what we created was not a bed and breakfast, but an air bed and breakfast. So kind of like a budget bed and breakfast that was kind of pop up for young kids. And that was where Airbnb comes from, airbedandbreakfast.com. By the way, I didn't, if you had ever asked me what I have then told that story like a thousand times since that, I never would have thought possible. Like I would have never imagined that. But here I am still telling that story because of what happened next. And I thought, you know, we would have like some young kids stay with us. Backpackers. Yeah, young backpackers, probably from LA. Like that's my assumption. Like guys. And we ended up having three people from like totally different demographics. We did 35-year-old women from Boston. I never thought a woman would stay with me. A (laughs) 45-year-old father of five from Utah, who was Mormon. And we had a 30-year-old originally from India. So essentially, we had these three people from all walks of life, Michael, Kat, and Amol. They ended up staying with us. And, you know, something happened. I mean, you know, they definitely saved money and they found a place to stay. But when they stayed with us, there was something that was significantly more important that happened. They got to feel like they were a designer in the city of San Francisco, right? And we basically took them around the city. We went to, with them to parties. Um, we, I, we took them to get burritos in the mission. I drove one of them down to Stanford to go to the D school, the design school. You know, we just kind of went around and we did stuff. And they got to experience living in San Francisco like a local. And I got to experience making money to hang out with people. And I thought this is kind of fun. And it kind of seemed crazy after we did it. What seemed crazy was that this didn't exist already. I was like, wow, like this literally doesn't exist. And it started seeming kind of crazy. Like, why do people stay in hotels? You know, like it it actually, not to say they shouldn't exist, but it seemed kind of crazy. We have these things called homes. We live in them. But then when we travel, we don't stay in them. We stay in these other structures created and dedicated for them. And it kind of seemed like, It was created because no one had found a system to get two people to trust one another in a way to stay in their home. And so we realized if we can solve this kind of basically this trust problem, make it easy, leverage the latest of what was at the time, like, you know, latest technology, this would be an idea that would spread around the world. And I remember saying, this is going to be huge. One day, thousands of people are going to do this. That was my like scale of like what was big. Thousands. thousands of people. <laughs> you knew there was something to it though, because you yourself were doing it. I thought there'd be a movement. Yeah. But to me, like a thousand people ever 
would have been a movement. You know, like like I had no sense of scale. I mean, today it's been used more than a billion times. If you told me wow. more than a billion times in nearly every country in the world that a stranger is staying with another stranger, I mean, like tonight around the world, a few million people will literally stay together. Never in you know history would that have been possible before a platform like that. But we ended up doing things that seemed crazy at the time. And now yeah. like I'll say them and they're like, oh, whatever. But we said, we're, both sides are going to have profiles. You know, back then, like no one had a profile like Craigslist. Yeah. We said that both sides are going to leave reviews for each other after they stay. So it's this currency of trust. And you can only leave a review, not like TripAdvisor or Yelp, only if you make a booking. And we're going to handle yeah. all the payments through the system. Now, at the time, no one had done this. Like if you went on eBay, you had to pay through PayPal, but they like sent you to PayPal.com. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't a very integrated experience. Etsy sent you to PayPal. Um, so there really wasn't this idea that you would hit this button, you'd pay another person, this company would hold money. Like that whole model basically like didn't exist. And now it seems like there's a lesson here, which is it seems kind of like obvious now, like not crazy, but the ideas that seem obvious now are completely like terrifying, counterintuitive, because they require you to think differently about every single thing. You have to think from first principles. I remember somebody once saying, you know, Brian, don't worry about people stealing your idea. If it's any good, everyone will dismiss it. And that was actually the story for the first year. So we ended up launching. We had three people stay with us. We realized there's a bigger idea here, but we didn't know what to do next. And so I asked Joe, I said, well, who's the best engineer you know? He said, well, my old roommate, Nate is. Nate was a computer science major from Harvard. He was actually in the same kind of class as Zuckerberg. So that same kind of crew. And we got together and we said, what if you can build a website where you can book someone's home, the way you can book a hotel anywhere in the world? And little did I know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> Hang on, though. You learned the hard way about the payment system. I remember yes. this because I remember, was it at South by Southwest? You were traveling to Austin and you stayed with someone and they were like, okay, could you pay us now? And it was super awkward, right? Yeah, I actually, I can bring this story to Y Combinator because this is where Y Combinator gets involved. Okay. So I'm living at Rouse Street in San Francisco and we have three bedrooms. And after the founding weekend, our empty bedroom, we end up getting a roommate. And I think we got the roommate like on Craigslist. But the roommate, this guy named Phil, happened to work for a Y Combinator company called Justin.tv, which people, yes. And so people who know today would know that Justin.tv was essentially the precursor to Twitch. And it was Michael mm -hmm. Seibel, Justin Com, Emmett Shear, and Kyle Voigt, very notable Y Combinator founders. And so Phil was at that company. And I was like, what's Y Combinator? And, and so like, like, I was like, this seems like a really interesting thing. So we were completely fascinated. And so Phil was going to go to South by Southwest. So now this is like f six months later, five months later. So the founding weekend, October, 2007, we go home the holidays, we come back, we get Nate together and we decide we're going to build a website. Originally it was going to be basically air beds for conferences actually. And so we asked, well, what's the biggest conference in America that like every tech person is going to. And in 2008, that was South by Southwest. Yes. So we said, all right, we're going to go to South by Southwest. So Joe and I decided to go with South by Southwest. We launch for South by Southwest. We got like an article in Mashable. And it was like probably like 10 sentences in Mashable. There were maybe two comments. And mm -hmm. I thought we made it. I told my mom a blog wrote about mm -hmm. us. I thought, I honestly, at this point, I thought we You're were done. like the Beatles. 
Like we're done. I had no, I'm like, this is a movement. We're like the Beatles. We've made it, you know, but it turns out like, yeah, I think like maybe a few people had seen it. More people see a coupon at a, at a grocery store. We end up launching for South by Southwest and we end up getting two bookings that weekend. And I was one of the two bookings. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And then there was this other girl named Laurel. It's a, when you actually have so few customers, you like you study them. You're like, who are you? And is there another person like you? Because if there is, I can double my business. <laughs> and so it didn't really work. People weren't really interested. They thought it was kind of crazy. But I ended up using it in Austin, Texas. I stayed this PhD student originally from Vietnam, University of Texas, Austin, PhD student. And he like literally took like this site more seriously than I did. He had this like giant double-decker airbed with like a towels laid out in like a mint. And his girlfriend was making me like a traditional Vietnamese dinner. And I thought, oh my God. And the first night, we didn't, by the way, we didn't handle payments. So the first version, we didn't handle money. That was like, like handling money, like made everything significantly more complicated. So we thought, you know, it'll just be kind of like Craigslist. And then he asked me kind of uh, awkwardly that night, kind of innocently, uh, just quick question. I said, yeah. He goes, "Uh, how do I get paid? And I go, oh my God, I haven't paid him. And I didn't have any money. Oh, um. I'll go to an ATM tomorrow and I'll pay you. So then the next night I come back home. He has another dinner waiting for me. And all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, I forgot to, to get money. No. And so I, I think it was like the last night or the second to last night. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to figure out like where to go to get money. And at one point I remember like, he kind of admitted later to thinking like, wow, like, well, I was worried. He was thinking, wow, did this guy just You're build sus. a website to, yeah. To, to um to freeload. You know, freeload off of his user base, which is kind of a funny idea. <laughs> and I also realized like exchanging cash with a stranger in their house generally is not the kind of business I want to be in. Usually mm, that so, yeah. that's associated to like less regulated businesses. And so I wanted to basically have a payment system, not to have a business model, because back then it was believe it or not, uncool to make money. Like it was actually, my recollection is 2007, 2008, it was almost like a negative signal if you had revenue because you you kind of just had an association to being kind of like closer to a brick and mortar business. I felt less like a tech company and Facebook was taking over the world. And at this point, I don't think they had a meaningful amount of revenue. And so, you know, everyone wanted to do like a social network, like social networks in 2008 was like AI today. It was like all anyone was talking about. And so, and it's like, imagine the company saying like, we have a revenue model for AI. They're like, no, no, we're just focused on technology. They're not really focused on that. So we ended up wanting to have a payment system, not realizing that ended up becoming our business model. And then something else happened during Y Combinator, which is I ended up like basically checking out of my Airbnb. I'm about to go to the airport. And all of a sudden I get a call from Phil, my roommate saying, Hey, I'm going to come to Austin, Texas, stay another night. And I said, but I already checked out of my Airbnb. I can't do that. And he goes, don't worry, I'm coming. My aunt, she's got like a mansion outside of Austin. We're going to go there. And so I stay another night. I never hear from Phil. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I already gave the keys back. And then then my host ended up like going on vacation. So now we have two listings. One of them has gone on vacation. I don't know where to go. So I ended up having this weird moment where I like went to a hotel a lobby, but I didn't have enough money to sleep in the hotel and get a plane ticket back. So I ended up like using the backpack as a pillow. And all of a sudden I have this dream in the lobby. And my in my dream, my roommate is standing over me. And all of a sudden I hear a voice and somebody says, is that your roommate? 
and it's Michael Seibel. And he's standing <laughs> over me in a lit lobby in Austin, Texas. Michael Seibel tells me, like, come, come stay with us for the night. And long story short, I end up pitching Michael Seibel, Airbnb, the vision. I don't think he totally understood like how much, you know, the gap between what we were doing and my enthusiasm for where we were going. And he yeah. basically said, I know these people that can write $20,000 checks for you over dinner. I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, no, these people are angels. And I said, oh my God, this guy believes in angels. This is <laughs> totally crazy. And he goes, no, 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 angel investors. I'm like, oh, okay. And then Michael Seibel kind of took us under his wing. Joe and I would kind of meet with him each week and, you know, kind of, that was the next chapter. Now, angel investors, this is very important because before you did YC, and we'll get to that in a second, which I believe was sort of your last chance, last yeah. hope of life for Airbnb, you spent a year trying to raise money from angels in Silicon Valley and you got a lot of no's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we tried to raise $150,000 at a $1.5 million, I think, post-money valuation. So, you know, you would have gotten about 10% of the company for $150,000. And Michael Seibel actually introduced us to like maybe 10 investors. And then Joe and I sourced like another 10. So we probably pitched about 20 investors proactively. And they all said no. And there were all different reasons why. But mostly, I remember somebody said in slightly more polite words in this, I love everything but you and your idea. Basically, like <laughs> designers don't start tech companies and strangers won't stay with other strangers. We ended up meeting an investor at University Cafe. And I, I've told the story before, but like he ends up like, like we sit at a table. He says, I'll be right back. He goes to the counter, gets like a strawberry smoothie. He's drinking the <laughs> smoothie. I'm in the middle of the pitch. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like with, never lifts his head out of his out of the straw straws in his mouth the entire time <laughs> and like halfway through the pitch he just gets up walks away and leaves wow. leaves the smoothie on the table and i didn't quite know I, I thought he was like i'll be right back i i guess i misunderstood and i've never heard from him ever again so that was it <laughs> ever again did he ever did you ever see him again and say dude why'd you leave why did you just leave me hanging in the middle of no no i no i didn't i didn't I think just, just to like give some like maybe possible lessons to this chapter of the story. Number one, back then, everyone thought the next hot company was going to be a social networking company. And now Facebook had already started. And yeah, there were some social networks that became popular after. But in the intervening four or five years, none of those companies became really successful. I think that a lot of investors tend to want to invest a little bit sometimes superficially in the trend, like, oh, this company's great. I want to invest in more companies like that without realizing, well, actually, like there's usually going to be like one really large company and maybe many of these spaces, right? Like there is one Amazon. Now you want to get a return, you can have a bunch of companies. And I think they miss the founder. You know, I think that like what you're really investing in in the early days is a founder. I think a lot of founders, the big ideas are going to be kind of crazy at first. You know, the truly tr like disruptive ideas are going to sound like crazy and almost implausible and like that will never work. And I love something. I don't, I don't know if it's Paul Graham who says it or maybe you and Paul Graham that says like you have to have a unique insight. You either need to have a unique skill, unique insight. I think we as a founding team had some unique skills. We were very entrepreneurial. Like we had done a lot before. Nate was highly technical, but Joe and I were really good at design and marketing. This was in many ways kind of like a design problem. And I don't think that people saw it as a design problem, but it was, I felt like. And so I thought we were perfect for that kind of problem. So 
yeah, I think there were a lot of lessons there. I need to come back to the design thing in a second, but I quickly want to just touch on the the smoothie where the investor just walked out because I do tell other founders that story when I try to impress upon founders how difficult fundraising is and how thick your skin has to be and how you have to persevere through the like most humiliating no's. And you, by the way, have just about the most energy and the most sort of commitment, even in the face of craziness of most founders we've ever funded. But I tell that story to try to inspire people. Everyone, even the most successful founders have been told no early on. I mean, over and over. And yeah, I, I think there's a little bit, I don't know quite why this happens, but most people like to tell the founding story with some nostalgia that we had this idea, it took off and it worked. And I mean, that is maybe the story of some companies. Like my recollection is that's actually what happened with Facebook. But what is missing from these stories is all the struggle that leads up to it. And for us, it was a total struggle. Like just to give you an example, and I'll, I'll kind of like at a summary level, we had the idea. Then, you know, one weekend, some time goes by, we ship the first version of the product. Two people use it. I'm one of the two. So then we ship another version. That barely works. We then get introduced to like dozens of investors. None of them want to invest in the company. We have no money. You know, people think the idea is crazy. They're, they're not enthusiastic. They don't see most of this is the really early days. There's not a lot of belief in it. And, you know, even we as founders, like it wasn't completely obvious. I mean, we kind of, we believed in it, but, you know, like it was, it was hard to like stay focused on every day. There just wasn't a lot of momentum. And we all had other things going on in our life. And then, you know, those binders that could put baseball cards in. Like yeah. as a kid, I, I don't think they have them anymore. Everything's digital now. But back when I was a kid, you know, you had physical things. And we actually put credit cards in those binders. That's how many we like racked up tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And yeah, there was this crazy story where like the Democratic and Republican conventions are coming up. We're basically still providing housing for conferences and conventions at this point. Yep. And so we said, let's provide housing for the DNC. We ended up getting 80 bookings. I thought we were huge. I'm like, now we're definitely the Beatles. <laughs> and then the next weekend, we have two bookings for like the Republican convention. And then the next weekend, there was like no, no business. And I realized if only there was a Democratic convention every week, we'd have a business, but there isn't. Right. And so what do we do? So we thought we're airbed and breakfast. The airbeds aren't selling. Let's sell breakfast cereal. And <laughs> I, of course, intuitively. And at this point, I remember Michael Seibel getting extremely concerned. He's like, this does not sound like a recipe for a successful company. I remember thinking, I wonder if Mark Zuckerberg ever sold collectible breakfast cereal. It turns out never did. It was actually kind of a bad sign. But we just kept going. And I think the point of the story is that like, it's a year later, we spend tens of thousands of dollars, like probably, what did we rack up? Like $30,000 of credit card debt. We started selling collectible breakfast cereal. We launched three times. We got introduced to dozens of investors that weren't interested. And that was the state. When one night, Michael says, come over to the office at JustinDeadTV. So Joe and I go to the office and then we're kind of down. So the guys take us to like a Thai restaurant in San Francisco. And it's Michael, I think it's the whole crew, Michael, Emmett, Justin, I think, and, and, and Kyle, like the whole crew. And we're just depressed. And I remember Emmett saying like, maybe you just need to identify like what your viral coefficient is and da, 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 da. And I think, I think Justin Khan just said, you guys are dying. You should apply to Y Combinator. 
And I said, <laughs> Y Combinator, Y Combinator is for companies that have already, like, they haven't launched yet. We've launched. New York Times wrote an article about me. We're a big deal. And they're like, oh. you're a big deal that's dying. You are dying. Do I see? And so we go to the Y Combinator website. And on the Y Combinator website, it turns out the application deadline was like the night before. Oh, God. And I'm like, no. And Justin's like, or Michael's like, now you're definitely going to die. It's over now. <laughs> and we're like, no, it can't be possible. This can't be possible. So then Justin says, all right, I'm going to email Paul Graham and see if I can get a 24-hour extension. So he emails Paul Graham. This is like now 9 p.m. Paul okay. Graham writes back and he says, We'll extend it, but I need the application by midnight tonight. Now, I'm in West Coast time with Joe. Nate is in Boston with his fiance. It's now midnight. And I said to Joe, let's divide and conquer. You need to convince Nate in the next two hours to join Y Combinator if we get in and then move across the country. <laughs> and I will write the application. And of course, <laughs> Joe then calls Nate. Nate agrees, although I think the next morning, kind of said, what did I agree to again? And then realized he had to explain to his fiance that he agreed to move across country. Oh and that led to the interview with YC and YC was the final shot. And I remember us before we even got into YC saying, we're going to give this one more go. And at the end of YC, if we get in, we'll have a conversation. We will literally have a conversation about if we should keep working on this idea. And that led to us going to YC. Now, I remember the timing at this point had to have been November 2008. Yeah. What was happening in the world around us oh back my God. then? World was cratering in. A financial crisis. Yes. I remember, oh, oh, oh you're going to like this one. An investor, one of the investors told me the economy is so bad, I can't even invest in good companies right now. So why would I invest <laughs> in the Airbnb and breakfast? Wow. <laughs> I mean, oh they like, like companies with revenue and customers, you know, yeah. it's like even those companies ra can't raise money. You think you're going to get money for airbeds? Well, okay. So that's what's happening. This is like our third year of YC. We're still a very small potatoes type of deal. We were not that well known even in 2008, uh, more well known when we started. And I was pregnant at the time and giving birth in January of 2009. I remember getting to know you, but then I think the first third of YC and then, yeah, then I think. I think I only missed two dinners. I think I only oh, missed did? two dinners. Yeah. But anyway, so it's the fall of 2008 and we, Paul and I said, gosh, we don't know if the winter batch is even going to be able to raise money at Demo Day, which is in March of 2009. That's, you know, many yeah. months in advance. So we said, we're only going to fund people who we think are so tough and possibly making a little money and can make it to ramen profitability easily. And, and they have to be tough. So when you guys came in, I remember Paul didn't like your idea and he tried to convince you to do something else. Yeah, he tried to convince us to start Stripe. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Well, at least it was a good alternative idea. It was a good but, alternative idea. But you made, um, it was basically like, yeah, like, like a bank or like he had this like conceptual idea. And, I, and then in hindsight, I'm like, oh, my God, he tried to get us to start Stripe. But um, <laughs> which would have been a great idea, but wasn't our idea. And by the way, when we went down to the interview, Joe bought a box of Obama O's and Nate caught him packing the box. And Nate, as far as Nate's concerned, like, oh, my God, this was a horrible like nightmare detour that we were selling collectible breakfast cereal. And I'm <laughs> glad we're back on track. We're building websites again. And Nate's like just uh, Nate sees Joe 
packing the box cereal box. He's like, please, Joe, like, just don't bring that. And Joe's like, okay, so okay, okay. But no, he's still packing in this bag. I'm so glad he did because on the way out, the interview is like five minutes or something, 10 yeah, minutes. 10 minutes. You guys yeah. are walking out the door and just like, oh, wait, I'd like to leave these behind. And we started talking about the Obama O's and Cap'n Crunch and all of that. And I remember you guys walked out the door and I remember thinking they designed these cereal boxes and like stuffed fake Cheerios and off-brand yeah. Cheerios and like glue gunned it. These guys are tough. These guys are willing to do what it takes to survive. If it wasn't for you, we might not have gone into Y Combinator because no. you know, Paul Graham, I don't know, like Paul Graham admitted that he thought the idea was crazy. I think he liked us too. And I wonder if you weren't there. I don't know. You know, you really, I think you saw something. I think I like to think you saw something in us. And, and I think what Paul Graham described it later is that it was an investment nuclear winter and we were cockroaches. In other words, yes. you know, yes. we wouldn't die. He was looking for people who wouldn't die. He said, well, I won't die. Like if it's a nuclear winter, like I'll be the last thing dead. And so he's like, you're a cockroach. And I thought that was like the best thing ever, ever. Like, Paul Graham's like a luminary. And he said, I was a cockroach. So I call my mom. I said, this really famous investor just said I was a cockroach. And she's like, uh, <laughs> Did he Brian, say I don't that in the interview? Did he call you a cockroach in the interview? No, no, later on, later on. Oh, okay, like, okay. During YC. I'm pretty sure he said, we're looking for cockroaches and you guys won't die. I, I, he may not have said you're a cockroach, but he said like, they're looking for cockroaches and you guys won't die. And so like, actually, no, he, I think, I think he maybe did say cockroaches or maybe we said it, but I was very proud of that label, cockroach. Well, you should be. Oh, by the way, Jessica, do you remember that you also, the economy, just to, just to remind people how bad it was, it was, I recall it was way worse than today. Here's how bad it was. Oh, yeah. It was so oh, bad. Yeah. It, was, it was so bad for startups that you offered to let people defer. Do you remember that? Yes. Like, you could we, say we you said. can defer. The economy so, here's what you said, or Paul Graham said. The economy is so bad, we don't know if investors will even show up for demo day. So if you want to defer, you can defer. And I believe a startup deferred. So that was like just how bad it was. And there were like yeah. there were like 12 or 14 companies in our batch. I don't even think that there were that. Well, maybe there were 12. Maybe but it a was dozen. Fewer. It was actually the one time we went down from the, yes. the summer before. So we were really uncertain about what was going to happen. There was a lot of uncertainty. It was yes. grim. But we loved you guys. We really thought you were a great team. And Paul called you that night to say we're going to fund you, right? He called, yeah, you guys had this, I don't know if you still do this, but it's certainly a high anxiety tactic where he says like, we're going to call you and let yeah. you know if you got in, then we'll tell you the terms, although they're pretty much standard terms. And you have to tell us on the spot if you want to do it or not. Like there's no like thinking it through. And I'm like, okay, like this is definitely like a pretty structured thing. Well, it's, so not, it's not an intimidation uh, tactic. We gave everyone in advance the deal terms. So the only question yeah. was, do you want to do it? So we yeah, try yeah, to- yeah. We try to make things quick. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think you guys were really founder friendly. For us, though, it was like that Eminem movie, Last Mile or Eight Mile, where like this is our last shot and like this is like our whole life flashing before our eyes and like <laughs> this is our final shot. It's like a big life decision, actually. And so we're in a car. I get a call from, I, I see this number and I it, it, maybe it was like a 617 or something number, which looked like a Boston number, which I'm guessing was Paul. And so yeah. I, Okay, I, I'm just, I don't know why I remember that, but I think I remember that. And I remember picking up the number and I go, hello? He goes, hey, Brian, this is Paul Graham. Can you talk? And I go, yes, Paul. And he goes, so Jessica and the partners and I talked and, and then there's like this long pause. 
And I'm like, this is cruel. Like, it's like, you know, those like, those like game shows where like, but then, and then I realized, oh my God, I have an iPhone. It's late 2008. And I'm on the 280 where there was like literally oh, no, no service. No, no right. service. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, so yep. I basically now have like, a, I'm in a dead spot for like 10 minutes. Yep. And so all of a sudden I'm like, no, no. And I didn't know. He's like, we need to answer right away. So I'm like, oh my God, like what if they just went down the list? This is it. And so I'm like, go, go, go. And we're in this old red Jeep Cherokee that Joe had. And he had this old like Jose Gonzalez mixtape that he played every time he got in the car for like 10 years in a row. It was just like the same song over and over and over and over again. And I like wanted to scream at this moment and I'm like, go, go. And it was like, he turned the like red Jeep Cherokee into the Batmobile. And we were like weaving through traffic to get back in the city. And by the time we get off the exit, we get back in the city, South of market, all of a sudden my phone rings again and it's him. And I'm like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. We got one more shot. They go, hello. He goes, Hey, all right, Brian. And he basically offers the terms and he goes, would you like to join Y Combinator? And I go, hold on one second. And then I suddenly realized, oh my God, we have a lot of leverage here. Wait one second. You're going to wait for me. Ah. And I go to the guys and I go, wait a second. Do we have any other options? They go, no. They go, all right, we'll take it. (laughs) All right, we'll take it. We have zero leverage and we want to do Y Combinator. So who cares? So we ended up doing Y Combinator and I know we're running out of time. So I'll just say that like we get to Y Combinator and the day of Y Combinator, Paul gives me the best and worst advice I've ever gotten in my life. The first piece of advice he gives is you have to move to Mountain View to start your company. That was the worst advice. That was totally crazy. You didn't need to live in Mountain View. But he followed it up with the best advice. It was a paraphrase from Paul Bukite, who I believe was on your podcast. And he basically drew this like on this whiteboard, this shallow swimming pool. It was like a cross section of the Washington pool. And then he did a cross section of like a well. And he said, you want to basically have a few people who deeply love you. So imagine like just a few people and you go really deep in love. In other words, it's better to have a hundred people that love you than a million people who sort of like your service. And this was totally counterintuitive because what it meant is that you should do things that don't scale. Focus on making something that somebody wants. In fact, you gave t-shirts, make something people want. And we thought we're overachievers. We want to make something people love and need. I mean, if, if I could just impart one product development piece of advice to everyone here, it would be focus on designing something perfect for one person. Don't focus on designing something for a million people. Isn't there like a writing exercise when you're writing, visualize writing to one person, not to this amorphous blob of people and the writing is typically better. Well, same thing with startups. Design the perfect experience. Imagine you're like a storyboard artist and you're storyboarding the end-to-end experience of what the most astounding product and experience is. And I wouldn't worry about distribution, marketing, PR, anything like that. That comes later. Make sure you have a product so astounding that people talk about it. It's very easy to focus on making something great when you actually don't have too many customers. And actually growth, paradoxically, even in a network effect business like Airbnb, growth is often your worst enemy to making your product perfect. Because the moment you have a lot of growth, you have a lot of problems and you're focused on putting out fires. And the time that you have to focus on making the product perfect is kind of out the window. Now you got to like answer customer service calls and make things improve. You have to like fix bugs and you have to like build an organization. I mean, here's what I would say. A lot of founders are frustrated probably. Like, why aren't I raising money? Why don't I have more growth? And I say, oh my God, like, I I know you need some money to work on your product, 
But this is the golden moment. This is the golden era for you. This is the moment when you define your culture, you build something amazing because once it takes off, it's really hard to improve it. It's much harder than people think. Back to you being a designer, because this, this, I think that most people don't realize the connection, the importance of your and Joe's background as designers and your success. And specifically, I'm going to talk about this idea of field work that you guys did. Yes. You went to New York when you didn't have that many users. I remember Paul during YC said, well, where are most of your users? And you're like, New York's our biggest market. And he's like, well, what are you doing here? And you guys got on a plane and you went out with your camera equipment that you had and you talked to your users and you learned so much by just visiting them. And I think that if you hadn't have been designers, you might not have wanted to do or known to do that kind of field work, right? Yeah, I kind of talk about it like there's the laboratory and there's going out in the field. And when you're in your home, you're on a laptop coding or building something or designing something, you're really in the laboratory. In the laboratory, you're making a bunch of assumptions of what people want. But the problem is that a lot of people don't actually get out in the world and they don't actually talk to the people. And remember, all you have to do is make something people want. Like that was what I learned from my career. Make something people love. And so mm-hmm. you need to spend almost as in the early days, you probably want to spend nearly as much time in the field as the lab. And so talk to your customers become your customers, watch your customers. You know, when you bought an iPhone, Steve Jobs didn't come and sleep on your couch, but I did. I actually lived with our users. And by living with them, I noticed a bunch of things. I noticed, wow, this home is way nicer than the photos. And this is before phones have like good cameras on them. So we developed this whole operation to like photograph people's homes for them, which was like at the time, it was almost like an Uber on-demand service before Uber. It was actually a pretty innovative little service. I could go down the list of things. But it's amazing what you can learn just by watching. There are so many subtle things about life that could be better if you slow down and you pay attention. And I think that one of the challenges of Silicon Valley is that we're very focused on growth. Mm. And I think that like growth is critical. Like a startup doesn't grow dies. But people need to keep remembering that mainly things grow because people love them and tell other people about them. And that's yeah. kind of the really simple thing. Like the simple thing is make something that people love and mm-hmm. go crazy. I mean, I would say like make it almost, I understand the idea of an MVP, but I would say like make it so crazy that people tell each other about it because it's really hard to get anyone to notice your product. It's really expensive to market. It's a really crowded field. And so you just got to try to make something astoundingly cool. It doesn't have to do a ton but it's got to be astoundingly cool. And it can't just be well-built. It's got to be something that people you know want. And I think this is counterintuitive to a lot of analytical people or um, kind of computer, yeah. computer science backgrounds. But to a designer, it was totally normal to walk in someone's shoes and say, I'm going to make this thing so much better than anything you've ever seen before. And then we would go back. So we would commute from Mountain View to New York every single week during Y Combinator. And so Joe and I would go to New York City for a few days, be in the field, living at users, get all his feedback. Then we go back. We design, hand everything over to Nate. Then he'd be building. Then we go back to New York. And I think that rhythm is a great metaphor for what people should be doing in the early days. I think founders should be in the details. I would encourage people to have a designer on their founding team. But even if you don't, remember, design isn't how something looks. It's how it fundamentally works. 
And so as a designer, you have to walk in people's shoes. You have to make the Mm -hmm. complex simple. You have to look at a holistic solution. And I think these are some of the things that you should do. And if you do all that and you build something people love, then they're going to tell each other about it and you're going to grow. I'm getting a little sad here, Brian, because I know we're coming up to when we have to end. And I feel oh my like, God, I, thought we were like I didn't order the way through. I didn't even get to <laughs> an, ask like any of the questions. We didn't even get to like YC. I feel like someday you're going to have to come back and do Airbnb part two. Well, why don't we make this part one? Part one. Yeah, part one well, yeah. you have to invite. Yeah, this is part one because mm-hmm. honestly, like we've only gotten started. And like, by the way, like I'll just say this because I'm 15 years into this. I speak at nearly every Y Combinator dinner that I can. Yep. Yes. And for years, most of my YC talk was just the founding of the company. And I remember like a few years ago, I said to myself, the craziest thing I ever did in my life and the craziest thing I'll ever do in my life was start Airbnb. And little did I know that something so much crazier than everything I just told you was about to unfold, which was the pandemic. We lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. People yeah. thought we were going out of business. And when you have a business like ours that was doing like $35 billion, I believe, at that point in bookings a year, and you lose 80% in eight weeks, it's like an airplane that's going to lose massive altitude. It's like in 18, we were slamming on the brakes. Nothing good happens. Our business flashes before our eyes. And what came next was actually crazier than everything I just said. And maybe that could be the basis for part two. And also, I would just say, I've just, you know, I think that like there's a whole bunch of lessons I've learned from the early days, which I, I, I shared some of them. But there's also for people listening after YC, what do you do after YC? Yeah. What do you do when you're 20 yeah. people, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people? There's a whole like journey there too. Yeah. We have to do, will you agree to do part two? Cause I, we didn't let's even talk about COVID and, and how you've like, let's sort of make this a serialized, let's make this a serialized version. So part this is part one. <laughs> no we'll pun intended. We'll look, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I am a serial entrepreneur. So, um, and so we're going to, we're just going to keep going until okay. the story complete. So it's just like, this is just a pause because I do, I didn't even get a chance to say how you were like the model YC founder. We're at the end of part one, part two, we'll pick it up at YC. And then I think that, and then part three is the crisis. Yes. I love this. I can't promise the listeners what the timing will be on these, <laughs> but we're going to, yeah, we're going to do yeah, it. Yeah. Let's say in the next, we'll do in the next month or so. So is that okay? Is that too much gap? No, it doesn't matter. Whatever you can, okay. we'll do it. Because I'm also yeah. have to say just how proud we are, how proud I am, and we are. And I'm going to start to cry because I always cry. Stop! I'm crying, and I see these successful founders who I knew back when they, you know, were doing YC, and I'm just so excited for you. And I really want to hear the the rest of all the stories. And I just last question that Carolyn and I were talking about before you got on is. Now that you're, you know, public company CEO and all that, what do you enjoy doing in your spare moments? You must not have that much free time. Yeah. Like what makes you happy personally, like completely apart from Airbnb? I'll end with one big thought. This is a really big thought though. Okay. And maybe I'll talk about this a little more than than, the part two, but here it is. And this is a kind of heavy thing. Nobody told me how lonely it would become at times. Mm. to start a company. You know, I kind of, you know, when I started Airbnb, Airbnb was like my family. The employees you like, you hang out with, you 
go to bars together and like that they're your friends. There's not really this sense that they're your, when you start a company, you're five, 10 people, they're not, they're not really your employees. They're your friends that you, that, that you work with and you know, you all yeah. have equity, you're hardly making any money. And then one day you wake up if you're successful and it is shockingly isolating and lonely to be a CEO of a large company. But you're, it doesn't look like you'd be lonely because you're surrounded by people all day. The more successful you are, the more people are you're surrounded with, but the more isolated you feel because the fewer people share the context that you have. The buck stops with you. And this is how I felt before the crisis, you know? And the other thing is that like, you know, I am 41 and a lot of my friends that are my age have families. Like my parents had me when they were like 30. A little bit of my personal life was kind of on hold. I mean, Airbnb was completely consuming. And one day I remember waking up in late 2019, feeling like, wow, life is a little lonely. I need to make some changes. And then the pandemic occurs and it's even worse. And then suddenly over the course of 2020, I was working basically like 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And I didn't feel like I was talking to people all day, but it, it was just work, right? And I, at some point, I kind of realized by 2021, like, I got to be careful that this is not the rest of my life because I've had all this success. But what's the point of being incredibly successful if you're also going to be like really alone? And separately, I'd started studying loneliness. And the reason why was, this is a crazy story. I hired as a contract consultant, um, the Surgeon General in the United States, the current Surgeon General for President Biden mm. was also the Surgeon General for Barack Obama. And mm. we hired him because it was a pandemic. We wanted the homes to be uh, yeah. sanitized. And yeah. we thought like this person could give a seal of approval for like what would be a good protocol. But in getting to know him, you know, I kind of realized he had written a book for during his first administration. And his book was about what he believed was the number one killer in America. And people think the number one killer in America is either like obesity, cardiac disease, or cancer. And he said, well, not exactly. That his opinion, the number one killer in America was loneliness. That if you look at depression, no. you look at suicide, no. you look at obesity, that um, the opioid crisis, that there was a dark thread. It's not that all addiction comes from loneliness, but that a large amount of people, though a lot of these ailments also happen to have weak social connections and that being lonely takes 15 years off your life. It is like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And this is what he said before the pandemic. And so why is this happening? Well, the mall is now Amazon. The theater is now Netflix. The restaurant is now DoorDash. The office is now Zoom. And each one of these changes is great. I love every one of those products, but we have to be very careful society that we don't design a world where every small innovation is a step forward for humanity, or we think it is, but then there's a larger context where we're alone. And I learned that the loneliest people in America, you know who they are? Teenage girls. Teenage girls oh, are lonelier than people in nursing homes. And that wow. two out of three teenagers between 18 and 25 are lonely some or all of the time. And so this became like a personal like kind of mission for me. And we can talk about it more in part two. But I said, wow, I can, I, I, if I'm going to address this, I have to start with myself. And so I started just really becoming intentional about thinking about all the people in my life. Because I actually had a lot of friends, but I didn't really maintain a lot of relationships. And so I started 
rekindling relationships with my friends. I started rekindling relationships for my college friends, high school friends, others. And the last thing I'll say about like loneliness is loneliness is something I thought people that are at the end of their life experience. It's actually a feeling everyone experiences. Like if you don't experience loneliness at one point in your life, you're probably not human. A loneliness doesn't mean you're alone. You're not in a relationship or marriage. Loneliness, you need concentric circles. You need to be connected to yourself, to a family, typically, to friends, typically like 10, 15 relationships, to a larger community of like 100, 150 people. This is the Dunbar rule. And what we call the, the cosmos, even a sense of something bigger than yourself, whether it's a tech industry or your country or your sports team. But, and you need really varying levels of connection. And I think that we're starting to live in a world where increasingly more of our time is spent online. The average American today spends 10 more hours alone than 10 years ago. Every year, the average American is spending an extra year alone than the year before. I think this is a really big issue. There's this old, like, what do you think is true that everyone disagrees with you about? My thing is that I think loneliness will rival global warming in the 21st century as a major problem. And I think it's the least talked about problem in the world. Uh, sorry, this is like a really heavy answer, but it, it goes back to like where I want to repivot the company. Because like during the wake of the crisis, which we'll talk a little bit more later, when our business flashed before my eyes, I said, we need to focus on something that's going to really help people. The thing we can do is we're not going to solve this problem, but we're going to like, I want to bring it back to its roots and help regular people connect together. And so the long story short is I started my own life. I got really intentional about like rekindling relationships with friends. Yep. It really helped a lot. You know, I still feel a little loneliness, but I, 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 it's a lot better. And then, you know, the, for the company, we're really, we've got some really cool things coming up that hopefully help you know, continue to bring people together. And I think that's something that like drives me now that it kind of always has been in the background, but I think there's an imperative that's greater now. And I think that Airbnb, what's different about us than other technology companies is we sit at the intersection of technology and design, of technology and the humanities. And so I think that we're a company that's uniquely suited for problems that are kind of rooted in people and their relationship to other people. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we sit. That's what we're kind of, that's one of the things we're kind of focused on. You bring people together for sure. That's what we're trying to do. All right. We better let you go back to your, your day job. <laughs> but we are all going to see each other in person in less than in like three weeks on that. Yeah, I'll see, you, I'll see you in three weeks. And I promise we'll do a part two. And who knows, maybe we'll just keep going. But I have too much to say to end the podcast here. So we have, we got to do a little bit <laughs> all more. Right. Part Perfect. two. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Brian. I'm sure. No, he's like, what did you agree to do? Like, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> there, he's going to be interview? so mad at you. But you agreed to part two and part three. We've already laid out maybe, the format. Maybe it should be like a 10-episode series. And just like it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> and we just keep going. And I, I can literally go day by day. Like, 2014. It was a Tuesday. Chronological. No, <laughs> yeah. we'll go chronological. All right. Exactly. We, we. It's so great to see see you and hear your voice and hear all your stories. Thank you again for your time. And thank uh, you, Brian. Caroline, thank see you, you soon. Just, I can't wait to see you in person. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. bye. Carolyn, that was wow. so much fun. That was. So it was fun and it was also so heavy at the end. I know. I think that honestly was... That was the least surprising answer. I, I think with lots of amazing, interesting stuff packed into it. But yeah, I've heard a lot of people say 
that the CEO job is super lonely, but also like loneliness in general. I, I know it's that lonely that's a, at the top. It's lonely. It's I mean, lonely it's a cliche. It is lonely at the top. But that's so interesting. I didn't realize he was so interested in. I mean, I know he's always been a connector. I mean, it's clear. Yeah. It's like a defining characteristic of him, and it goes back to you know RISD when he was bringing people together with the the hockey team or whatever. The basketball team, I forget which one he and Joe had. You know, it's a defining quality of him to bring people together, to connect people. And so I can see why he's so fascinated with loneliness. I have to admit, I hate ending on a bit of a sad and serious note. That would have been a good ending for maybe part three. Two other nuggets, just just to point them out. The point about design is not how it looks, but how it operates or, you know, how it, I I don't remember what his exact words were. That's something that Gary has been saying a lot too. And I don't think it really sunk in until Brian said it, that it's like, yeah, you think of design as like, just like the outside, the exterior of something, but it's so much deeper than that. Super important. It is not just a head count. It is like how you connect with your users. Yeah, yeah. Super important. And then the other nugget that Brian said about growth and growing too fast, and I feel like I could make a list of 100 companies that got too much money and grew too fast and had exactly the problem that Brian was describing. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I'm just sad because I have so many questions I wanted to ask him and we didn't even scratch the surface because there's so much and there's so many raisins in that scone. Yeah. I mean, it's 15 years. So of course. And yeah, yeah, so it'll be really great to talk to him again and get part. And he is committed. We've got him on (laughs) tape. (laughs) So we'll, I don't know when we'll do it, but we'll come back with part two and part three if need be. But yep. I just love his stories. And I do yeah. think they help illustrate some important themes, like just how much determination you have to have and just right. how long it takes. And it's a yeah. long game. No, he really is like the poster child for all of those themes that we talk about and has a great way to weave them all together, too, which is which is really interesting. Should I be embarrassed that I always get a little choked up when they're no. talking about how successful they are? No. I remember embarrassed. years ago, I went to this sort of lunch and Bill Clinton was there and he was talking, Brian was there and Bill Clinton was talking to him. And I think Patrick Collison and Drew Houston. And I remember I was just looking at the three of them talking to Bill Clinton and I like got all teary eyed <laughs> thinking like Bill Clinton's just talking to these three young people that we funded and I'm so yeah. proud of them. I just can't help it. Yeah. No, that's a superhuman reaction. So I I don't think you should be embarrassed. Well, it was really, it was a fun conversation to have with him as, you know, always. And we'll look forward to part two. Yep, exactly. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.